There are more than 250,000 unsolved murders across the United States. This is a national crisis, and there are thousands and thousands of families who have no answers about who killed their loved ones. Using advances in technology, crowdsourcing, and good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground investigative work, follow American Military University's Cold Case Investigative Team as we work to break the case for one of those families. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Break the Case. I walked between the two vehicles, and when I turned the corner, noticed Debbie laying by the step. The other thing is, like, as the attack's going on here, her attacker can't see much either. No, no, that's exactly right. So that could also be part of the distribution of the different wounds because they're just aimlessly stabbing. We had no help, no support. So we decided to do our own investigation. I will lay you dollars to donuts that the name of the person who did this is in the books I've carried around for 35 years. The most logical thing that I can think of is somebody tried to shame her. I feel like it's somebody that both of us knew, maybe somebody that she had dated once upon a time. I'm going to assume that Debbie's killer is going to listen to this. So what would you like to say to them? I'm coming for you. Hey, everyone. Jen here. If you haven't listened to the previous seven episodes of this season of the podcast, please go back and do so in order to get caught up on our work. George and I will be providing some updates on the status of Debbie's case at the end of this episode, so please listen all the way through. I also want to remind listeners about our participation in a new initiative provided by the producers of Crime HQ, a partner of CrimeCon. George and I will be the hosts of weekly live sessions discussing our work on Debbie's case. In many of these sessions, we'll be joined by experts in various fields of investigation to help us analyze the facts of our case and narrow down the list of suspects. If you'd like to be a part of the live audience, please sign up at CrimeHQ.com and join the Cold Case Club advertised on their website. When George and I traveled to Lubbock in August of 2021, one of the people George was able to meet with was Lennis Terry and his wife Rhonda. Lennis was the best man at Doug and Debbie's wedding. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to meet with him when I was there, but Lennis was gracious enough to get on the phone with me to share some of his recollections of Debbie and Doug and discuss his thoughts on the murder. Hello. Hey, Lennis. Yes. Hey, it's Jen Buchholz. How are you? I'm good. Could I ask you a couple questions? Sure. Can you maybe just tell me how you met Debbie and Doug and what you remember of them as a couple? Okay, well, Doug and I were in uh, ninth grade together. Mm -hmm. And we got to be friends. We had two classes. We had a shop class and a math class. And... We just got to be good friends. It wasn't long after that. We got our driver's license. Doug started working at McDonald's, and then I got on at McDonald's. And so we both started working at McDonald's together up until we graduated from high school. And uh, then after we graduated from high school, we uh, both continued to work. I worked at one McDonald's, and he worked at the other one. And we had an apartment together for probably about six months. And we're best friends. I quit McDonald's and moved back home. And our contact wasn't near as close when we were working together and weren't living together. Mm-hmm. But we still stayed friends. And we stayed friends until you know, now. As far as Debbie, Debbie started working at McDonald's. And I don't really remember when she started. And I, I think I worked with her son over at the 50th Street McDonald's, but I'm not exactly sure how much. Okay. And uh, I remember, because I remember she had the uh, two colored eyes, and I I was really surprised that they were even dating. And I remember Doug 
one time I was talking to him, and he made the comment that he and Debbie were going to get married. Mm -hmm. I was best man in his wedding, but like I said, we weren't spending just a, a tremendous amount of time together because, like I said, I was working a different job. I was married. I was going to college. Sure. So the opportunities for us to get together were not that great. Yeah. Uh, and so we were on a bowling team together for a while because I remember my wife would come up, and we, Doug and I, and I think Paul and Lex and all of us were on a bowling team. Okay. And so we would go up there and bowl. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of the extent of when and how I, I've known Doug. Okay. I don't and know. I got to be real good friends with his parents because I'd, you know, we'd go out to his place. And so he and his parents, Raymond and Martha, loved them to death. And I'd spend the night out there with Doug and just really enjoyed hanging around together. Okay. This is a little off topic, but this came up the other day with one of our group members. Do you remember which bowling alley you guys bowled at primarily? Was oh, yeah. there a single yeah, one? Oh. It, it was Lubbock Bowl on Avenue Q and about 40th. Now it's an uh, antique store. Oh, okay. Okay. That's where we always bowled at Lubbock Bowl because Doug's brother, Roger, he worked there while he was in high school or whatever, and he was a big bowler too. Oh, okay. So, oh yeah, we we spent many nights bowling, playing pinballs there at Lubbock Bowl. I remember Lubbock Bowl very well. Mm -hmm. So what can you remember around the time of the murder and how you found out about it? Uh, Doug called me. My birthday was the 21st, and it was mm -hmm. that weekend of my birthday. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rhonda and I had gone to uh, Lake Brownwood with the guy I went to high school with and his wife. They had a cabin out in Brownwood and we went there for that weekend and had gone that weekend and got back Sunday afternoon I think or something like that and we were at home and uh, I obviously went to bed early and because I you know had work Monday the next morning and um, I think we got a call from Doug in the middle of the night and Doug told me that she'd been killed wow. and uh, that's how I found out about it Doug called me that night mm -hmm. uh, after it had happened Oh, and uh, so, and then I think the next day I got with Doug, and I think he even spent the night with us because uh, he didn't want to go back to the house. Sure, I don't blame him one bit. And so we we had a little two bedroom house over on off of Boston, and so uh, the next two or three nights, I think he stayed with us at at night. Mm -hmm. And do you remember anything else from that week, like leading up to the funeral or her funeral or? what police were doing or any other memories? I remember Doug got interviewed with them because they obviously, he found her. And I know they interviewed Doug a couple of times. And I know Paul was interviewed. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about Lex, if mm -hmm. he was interviewed or not. Because like I said, Lex, you know, he, he was ran around with Paul a lot, but they never did interview me. And, uh, wow. you know, I kept thinking that, They'd want to call and ask me some questions, but they, they yeah. never called. And so, like I said, Doug stayed at our house. Uh -huh. He stayed with us for a while. And I don't remember how many nights he stayed at our house. And I'm sure his mom and dad came in and he probably went back because that house was his mom and dad's. Right. Correct. We had the funeral. I remember that. Then I know Doug moved into the Altura Tires. Yes. Uh, I don't know how long that, but I remember he got that because it was a really the only secure apartment complex really in Lubbock at that time. Sure. And he was very, he was petrified. Oh, absolutely. And, Rightfully uh, so. So I know he got a little apartment up there. I think his mom and dad were living in Brownwood at the time. You know what? That sounds right. Yep. And uh, yeah, because they were living in an old ranch house in Blackwell or somewhere like that. Okay. Ron and I went down there and stayed with them. And I remember Doug and I went duck hunting and went down there for a long weekend and stayed with Doug and Martha and Raymond. And, and I think right after that was when he went ahead and moved on to Arkansas. Okay. Yeah, that sounds so, about right. I can't even imagine. But did you guys discuss the murder at all in the aftermath? Uh, You know... I never did go into the details with him. You know, we, sure. we I'm sure we had some conversation, but, mm -hmm. you know, as far as we knew what had happened and 
I think we talked about who could have done it. Mm -hmm. And I remember we talked that we thought that it was her brother. We Mm -hmm. thought he was our suspect. We knew what all had happened and been, you know, with all the news and everything else. And so we talked about it to some degree, but, you know, I didn't dwell on it. You know, we tried to go on and deal, but... uh, Yeah, well, and it's a very tough subject to bring up with somebody who's suffered through that, so I totally understand. You know, we'd talk and we'd ask if they had heard anything. Uh You know, we'd always stay in touch and, and talk about it, but as far as trying to go through and talk about the night and stuff like that, you know, we... We didn't. I remember we'd talk every once in a while about the wedding pictures. Ever wonder where the wedding pictures ever ended up? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we wonder that, too. Yeah. One of the nights, we were all out at her parents' place out at Buffalo Lakes. Okay. And, you know, we were all sitting around, kind of visiting. And uh, Doug looked over and said, would you go to the house and uh, get the wedding pictures? They should be by the fireplace. And this is like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And I'm going... Okay, I know Paul went with me, and I'm not sure anybody else did, but I know Paul went with me. And so we drove back into town, and I remember telling Paul, I said, well, we're going by the Mr. Donuts, which was right next to the McDonald's. Okay. And I said, because we're going to go by there, and hopefully we can get a policeman, because I'm not going to that house at 10 o'clock at night by myself. Sure. Sure enough, there was a policeman that was on break. We pulled up, and went in, told him who we were and what we were doing, what we needed. And so he followed us out there, and we went out there and went into the house and searched all over. Wow. And could not find the wedding pictures. Mm-hmm. And the house wasn't disturbed. There was nothing out of place, cluttered, messed up, or nothing. Okay. And I don't remember how many nights that was after she was killed. I don't know if it was. It couldn't have been more than one or two. Uh-huh. Did Doug give you his keys, or how did you get into the house? I don't remember. Don't remember. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he would have had to have given us the key. Uh-huh. Uh, because I remember getting the policeman, because I wasn't doing it myself, and I was scared to death to go out there. Oh, I don't blame you. And he had to have given us a key, because I didn't have a key, and we didn't break in, so. Yeah. Do you remember if that, when you guys went that night, was the kitchen window still broken from the... I, whatever the killer did with it? I, don't, I don't remember. Okay. Like I said, the mission we were on was to get the uh, wedding pictures. Yeah. And that's the only thing that uh, I remember we were looking around. Mm-hmm. This is when it was discovered that those photos were missing, right? Uh, to my knowledge, because yeah. we didn't know that they were not there. And because uh, mm-hmm. uh, Doug wanted them to look at. And then that's when uh, I told him that we couldn't find them, that they were not there, that we didn't know. Know mm-hmm. where they were at. Yeah. Well, I mean, so. you probably know now, like our guess is that Debbie had them with her, maybe in her yeah. purse or something that evening. And I remember they didn't find her purse, so that could have Correct. been the connection that she had them in her purse. And whoever did it maybe apparently had to have taken her purse with her. Mm-hmm. with him. Yeah. So. So 46 years later, what's your theory on what happened to Debbie? I didn't think it was a random deal. Because they were so far out in the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, So. Well, and I think George probably told you when he met with you, but we went to the house, the anniversary of her death. And uh even in current day, that carport is pitch black and so is the backyard. Oh, yeah. Someone had to know it. Like someone had to have been there before. At that time, 82nd Street was just a tiny two-lane road. Yeah. And there was no houses, all that stuff to the north of 82nd. That was all a field. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was nothing out there, and all those businesses out to the west of their house, that was all a field. You were out in the boonies. Yeah, it was pretty remote. Uh, yeah. So, who would have known she was there? But I always thought it was maybe somebody that knew her. Mm-hmm. Do you remember anything, like Paul, Lex, or any of these other guys that you all hung around back at that time? Do you remember anything they said about it no i i just remember paul was questioned a lot Mm -hmm. but i never did ask him what they asked me i just know that he kept going in for questioning Mm -hmm. my contact with paul was primarily i think at the bowling alley we'd see him there and that was about it and in fact i think doug told me as much that they kept interviewing paul and lex Hmm. lex i saw even lesser of lex i just know he hung around some and he and Paul were the better friends. Mm-hmm. 
like I said, I've kind of scratched my head and I wish I knew more, but... No, it's okay. Like, you've still uh, been really helpful. Just hearing all these little tidbits helps us piece everything together. I remember Doug was scared to death. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, he didn't have a clue. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know if somebody was after him now. Sure. It's horrifying. And, you know, I just remember it was really a tough time, really for all of us, sure. uh, just trying to deal with it. So it was really yeah. a tough time. And then, like I said, Doug didn't stay in Lubbock long. I Obviously, can't. it was that much harder to stay in touch with him after he left. Mm-hmm. I remember some things, and after you start talking, you know, I forgot about the bowling, and then we bowled together and stuff like that. The more you talk about it, the more stuff starts to Come back to the top. Yes, that's exactly right. Trust me, you've been incredibly helpful. I just appreciate you being willing to take a little time. No, no, no to problem. Talk to anytime. Us. If I could help, I would. Anything yeah. I could say and do that could help find the creek. Yep. Uh, I would love it because he brought, I know, Doug and us, you know, a lot of party. Yeah. So if the killer's out there, I'm sure they're following our work and listening to our podcast episodes. So what would you want to say to them? You hurt so many people. For no reason at all. And Debbie was a sweet girl, and her and Doug were just married and had their life ahead of them. And, you know, what you did was just unconscionable. Mm -hmm. And uh, you deserve any punishment that you've been given. Yeah. We're going to find this person. Anytime you think of anything, and if I come across something that might jog another memory, I'll let you know, too. Sure. Yeah, anytime. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Over the past few months, many people who knew Debbie have joined our Facebook group and our effort to find her killer. Jennifer and I have spent hours conversing with some of these people and discussing aspects of the case, but have also heard many of their recollections about Debbie as a person. One of the people who reached out to us at the beginning of our investigation was Kelly Martin, a former co-worker, classmate, and friend of Debbie's. Hey, good morning. Is this Jennifer? This is. Is this Kelly? It is. How Hi. you doing? I'm good. So thankful that my friends invited me to that group. I was just blown away. This is wonderful to see so many people trying to solve her yes. brutal murder. Yes, we are I mean, on it hard and heavy, and we're not stopping till we figure this out. That's great. That's great. Ugh. I mean, we were so young and innocent and mm. in Lubbock, Texas. For something that brutal to happen was just horrific. We were all on edge for a long, long, long time. Yeah, I can't Uh, blame you. It's such a shocking, traumatic experience. I mean, the case went cold within a couple of years. Uh Uh-huh. What do you remember about the investigation or public release of information? Well, there wasn't a lot of public release information. There was stuff on the news for you know about a week mm-hmm. and then there were a couple articles in the Lubbock Avalanche Journal a couple of times I remember calling the police department and saying hey do we have any progress on this case you know uh-huh. the friend I mean and considering you guys interviewed me about a couple of potential suspects <laughs> okay so they did interview you oh yeah they did okay yeah they did they uh-huh. talked to me because we were, let's see, there was a guy named Paul. Uh-huh. He was interrogated many, many times. Uh-huh. And I think Paul was the pull. I can't remember if it was him or Lex Brown, but one of those two were the pool maintenance guy because we all hung out at a couple of different pools there in Lubbock. Okay. And so Debbie knew these guys too? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. We all knew these guys. Debbie and I worked together at McDonald's. It was the first McDonald's in Lubbock, Texas, there on 50th Street. Debbie and I, I just remember her laughter. We laughed so much. Uh-huh. She had a great, unique laugh. I can't remember if she met Doug at McDonald's. That's what or, he says, yeah. Yes, Doug, and then he went on to be a manager at Pizza Hut. Correct, yeah. Pizza Inn, but yeah, yeah same difference. Yeah, because we all went there, too. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, we had certain little hangout spots. We had the Sony Pizza Inn. We had a blast. And then, you know, on our downtime, we went to the pool or we'd go to the mall. Yeah. 
typical, typical teenage girl stuff. That's the same stuff I used to do. Exactly. Typical teenage girl stuff in Bible Belt, Lubbock, Texas. Were you guys hanging out that summer after she got married, but before she was killed? Not as much as we did prior. Mm-hmm. Because she was getting ready. She got married in June yes. of 75. Yes. And murdered in August of 75, correct? That's correct, yeah. So, no, we had kind of cut back on hanging out, although we still went to the pool a time or two. But I didn't get to see her as often as before. I remember we got a couple of things together, you know, for the house that they were getting ready to move into. Sure. Yeah. And then they got married. And then, let's see, I left to go to camp, our girls camp, up in Las Vegas, New Mexico, which I did every summer. And that was usually in June. Mm -hmm. So I was not there for her wedding and I was not there when they moved into the house. And then I got back from camp the end of July. Gotcha. Okay. So I was gone during that transitory time of her and Doug being married and moving into the house and mm-hmm. and that. And so I had that time off. Do you remember if you saw her after you came back from camp? I do remember seeing her because we went to the pool. Okay. Yes, we went to the pool. We actually were hanging out one afternoon, and I think it was a guy named Paul. And I know it was Paul. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a major suspect at mm-hmm. the time. And he knew Doug. He knew her husband, too. Mm-hmm. I remember there was one or two guys that I always was like, hmm, you know, questioned. What made you question them? They made me feel a little bit creepy. Like, I kind of just felt like one guy, I can't remember if it was Paul or Lex. I want to say it was Paul. Just kind of seemed to me to have like a silent anger about him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was interrogated. I think he said he had an alibi where he was with somebody helping. I don't recall, but he's had some kind of alibi, although it wasn't exactly a solid alibi. Mm-hmm. It was flimsy-ish, but... Back then, there's no cameras. There's no... I know. Yeah. No technology. (laughs) No. Nothing. In my personal opinion, nobody's cleared at this point. No. Nobody should be cleared. It was a brutal, heinous murder. Yeah. Just unbelievable. I mean, it it affected me deeply. I've thought about it over the years. I've gone back on the internet here and there looking for any kind of articles. I'm thinking, well, with all of this forensic science these days, may have been able to go back and find something. Yeah, I just published an article. I don't know if you saw it yet. I just published it a couple days ago because I got in touch with one of the country's leading DNA experts. I read it last time. Okay, good. She feels if the evidence has been preserved, there is a decent chance of finding the killer's DNA somewhere on one of those. Yeah, that would be wonderful. I mean, and I also read down at the bottom at the end of that article that the Lubbock Police Department was trying to decide who was going to process the DNA. And I'm like, you know what? Just hand that stuff over. Let's get this rolling. (laughs) I mean, I I understand their point because they got to maintain the chain of custody and make sure that whoever this goes to for testing is going to adhere to all of that, you know, confidentiality issues. And, but but I understand the frustration. I mean, I see both sides of it. Well, it was her murder that kind of led me down into, I worked for the the county attorney's office in Travis County for many, many years. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. I was just a legal assistant. So her murder was kind of like one of those things that kind of sparked something in you. Sure. It possibly changed the trajectory of your life. Yeah. Or influenced it, maybe I should say. It definitely influenced it. Mm -hmm. Debbie was such a sweet girl. I don't understand, even if it was somebody we knew that would act so violently. Mm -hmm. I just can't figure out what would get her killer to this level of rage. Which I somehow want to think that it was tied into perhaps her husband... But he was a nice guy, too. Mm-hmm. Granted, the, the side of town that they lived on back then was not the best. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, it was very 
sparsely populated. Um, yes. Then, unless it was somebody that had intent to break into their house, and Debbie just showed up at that wrong time. Mm-hmm. Still does not explain the brutality. No. Of her murder, seventeen stab wounds. Right. Exactly. To me, her brutal murder was personal. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I thought it then, because that's why I just started going through in my mind all the people that we knew. And uh, I mean, could it have been somebody that went into McDonald's regularly? It's possible. Very possible that there was somebody that went into McDonald's regularly enough to get to know her and or watch her. Mm-hmm. I do think that the person had to be familiar with her backyard at a minimum. When we went to visit the scene on August 24th at 9.30 at night, even 46 years later, it was pitch black. So to me, that eliminates a stranger to the house because there's no way someone's going to prowl around in that yard when you can't see a thing and you don't know what's where. I don't think it was a prowler. No, me either. It was somebody we knew. It was somebody known to us, whether they were a friend to us or somebody who watched her go in and see Doug at Pizza mm-hmm. Inn or watched her at McDonald's. It was clearly somebody we knew. Yeah. Or, do you remember in the aftermath, any of these people that you guys would hang out with, do you remember any of their demeanor changing or being different? I think I talked to Paul on the phone and he asked me something about, would you tell them? And I'm like, tell them anything other than I know you, that Debbie and I know you. Mm-hmm. And what's your problem? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a suspect. And I'm like, well, did you do anything that you shouldn't have? So he did made you- himself into a suspect verbally. Yes. That's and, unusual. Because uh, I'm telling you, he was he was put through the ringer. Yeah. He was not happy. Yeah. I understand it's nerve-wracking to be questioned and brought in as a potential suspect, but at the same time, it's like, this is your friend who was murdered. Don't you want to help? If you had nothing to do with it, don't you want to help solve it? If you had nothing to do with it, then... Yeah, what's the problem? No amount of time is a pain in the ass to you because you want to help get this solved. Yes. You want to absolve yourself from any type of suspicion or guilt. Yes. If you had nothing to do with it, yeah, you want your name cleared. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I said, we're not going to be talking anymore. And I don't know what happened to him. How soon after the murder did police bring you in for interview? Within the first two weeks. Do you remember what they, they were asking you? They asked me about any chance that... Debbie was having had another relationship going on on the side. Mm-hmm. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like they wanted to make it sound like Debbie did something to cause her murder. It's called victim blaming. Victim blaming. Exactly. Yeah. Even if yeah. she'd had an affair, that's no reason for her to be killed. Exactly. But no, they asked me that and be very upset about it. Mm-hmm. And my mother like, very upset about it. Um, yeah, victim shamed. Yeah. Do you think that she, you know, because y'all hung out with guys. I'm like, we're teenagers. We all hang out together. Of course. I still think this case is solvable. So. I hope so. My personal belief is no one goes 46 years after killing someone and doesn't tell somebody. So, you know, one of our goals is to find that person. Because whoever it is, they're going to realize pretty quick if they haven't already, like, we're serious about this and this isn't going away like it has before. Well, I just want to thank you and George and everybody involved in getting this going again. It's just been something that always lingered in my mind forever. Like, really, how can this poor girl have no justice? I know. Yeah. She deserves it and her family especially and... Her sisters have worked on this for 46 years. I mean, it has dictated their lives, and it dictated her parents' lives, too. So it's it's time. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. I so appreciate the conversation, and we'll talk soon. Thank you.
All right, sounds great. Okay, take care. Uh-huh, bye-bye. Bye. Cell phones, computers, vehicle data, security cameras, all digital evidence during the investigation of a crime. Today's investigators have to understand how to analyze and solve modern-day cases. That's why American Military University is on the cutting edge of criminal justice education with its Bachelors of Science in Digital Forensics. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more at amuonline.com forensics. The next person we had the opportunity to chat with was Mark Holmes. He worked at McDonald's with Debbie when they were in high school, and he attended her and Doug's wedding. Mark has also been a very active member of our Facebook group and engaged in countless conversations with us about different aspects of the case. Hey, George. Hey, Mark. Really glad to have you guys with me today. We've got Mark Holmes, who was a friend of Deborah Williamson's back in the 1970s. And I'd like Mark to give himself a little introduction here and tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you met Debbie. Thanks, Jen. Hi, George. We grew up in Lubbock, Texas. Went to the same high school with Debbie. Didn't know her in, in school. I was a year ahead of her in school. I met Debbie in 74. I uh, had graduated from high school and I needed a job. So a friend of mine and I went to McDonald's where she worked and uh, interviewed and got hired there. Uh, Debbie was our shift supervisor and Doug was the store manager. That's where I got to know them. What were your impressions of Debbie when you first met her and as you started to develop a friendship with her? She was very much in love with Doug. That's one thing you could tell right off. When we were hanging out, that's pretty much what she would do is talk about Doug. She was definitely a leader and a very nice person, very attractive, kind of a type A personality, but very likable. Everybody liked Debbie. What other memories do you have of her? Not not that much. When I turned 18, I joined the Air Force in the delayed enlistment program, and I didn't report to basic training until December. So kind of had that summer to hang out with everybody. Outside of work, we didn't do a whole lot. We were a pretty tight crew. Had uh, her, Paul, Neil, Tina on the front, a couple other people, my friend, Bruce, and then Doug was there up at the front. Okay. And just to clarify, it was December 1974 that you joined the Air Force? Right. In December 1974, I went into the Air Force, so I pretty much got away from everybody, and I would come home on the weekends to visit. But towards the end, I kind of quit coming home. So I lost a lot of contact with them about that time, towards the end of that summer of 75. Okay. So when you would come home from the Air Force, did you get to see Debbie at all on any of those weekends? We would go to the restaurant maybe once every couple weeks. I'd go and say hi to her, Mm -hmm. but not as much as I used to. I had orders to go to Spain, and I was... Ready to get out of Lubbock and stay away from Lubbock for a while. Understood. So, I mean, Lubbock is great. It was a great place to grow up. But I was ready to move on and see the world. Understood. So I kind of moved away from my friends at the time. So fast forwarding a little bit to the weekend of her murder, how did you find out that she'd been killed? I was getting ready to go to formation that morning. And I had the radio on listening to the radio. And again, this was in Shepherd Air Force Base in Wichita Falls. So it was the Texas news. So it made the news everywhere at the time. But I remember the person, the disc jockey, saying something about a murder in Lubbock. And the victim was Deborah Sue Williams. And, and I paused for a second. I said, are you kidding? Oh, my gosh. I remember I was putting my boot on. Mm-hmm. And I was so upset. I just threw it across the room. I remember running down. She was murdered on a Sunday, so I know this was a Monday. So I remember going down. The first sergeant said, I got to go back to Lubbock. A friend of mine was murdered. I got to go see what's going on. And, of course, they were like, too bad. Deal with it. Right. You got a weekend. You can go deal with it next weekend. So, unfortunately, I didn't get to go, but I heard it on the radio. Wow. So you weren't able to go to her funeral or anything then? No. No, I wasn't able to. So they forced you to stay there till what, the next what, Saturday or something? Yeah, next Friday. I, I remember going back that next Friday. Okay. And I remember you told me that you had chatted with an investigator from Lubbock PD, right? Yeah. Do you remember anything that they asked you or why they were led to contact you? I think I called them. Oh, okay. Because I don't I don't think I was even on their suspect list because I was in, in the military in Wichita Falls at the time. Sure. 
Yeah, okay. And that was the only time that you spoke with an investigator or police officer about her murder? Yeah, that was it. So, Mark, you obviously had a high interest in this. What was the prevailing theory at the time as to what happened to Debbie? A lot of her brother may have done it. There's possibly there was a cult involved that may have done it. I wasn't really sure. I did follow everything that was written in the paper at the time. Again, it was like, who could have done this? Obviously, it was somebody that was impassioned about it because of the violence that was inflicted on Debbie in the killing. But as far as who I thought may have done it, you know, at that time, I had no idea. Did anybody get onto your radar screen as far as someone who had have the potential to do this? I mean, to her specifically? Not at that time. Debbie was one of those kind of people that everybody really liked her a lot. She was a good Christian girl that, you know, she was a tough boss at times, but not enough to make you mad enough to kill her. Uh, but she was an extremely likable, lovable person. And I, I really don't know what caused somebody to want to do that kind of harm to her. We've heard that from everybody. I mean, literally almost the exact same words. I mean, not one person yet has said anything derogatory or even really said that they ever witnessed her raise her voice or get in an argument with anybody. No, I never saw it. So over the years, have you developed any more solid theories on at least the type of person who might have committed this crime? I want to think it was probably a male that did this, probably somebody that knew her and had an emotional connection to her. Mm -hmm. Just a random person that was walking down the street and thought they had an opportunity. I never thought it was that way. I think it was definitely somebody that knew Debbie. Do you think the person planned this murder out ahead of time? From the evidence that has recently surfaced, it wasn't professional at all, but mm -hmm. the knife, the whole, the whole knife thing, it was common to carry something under your seat in your car. Mm -hmm. That was the way things were back then, more than anything, just to give you peace of mind. But it was either in their car or they brought it to the murder scene. Mm -hmm. I really don't think they had it on them. People did carry boot knives, but that's an awful big knife to be sticking down your boot. How much premeditation was involved, I couldn't tell you, but it was an amateur and it was dark. So mm -hmm. Now, Mark, had you ever been out to Doug and Debbie's house before? Were you aware of like the yard and the area? When the murder happened, did you have an idea of what the geography of that area was? I do think I went to the house that weekend afterwards just to see where it was and, and whatnot. And I remember going there and thinking, my gosh, they live out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And at that time, there was nothing around them. It was pretty desolate. Wow. Yeah. That imagery that we got recently from that year, that hit home for me when I saw that. Just a few neighboring houses and that's about it. So... Do you feel the killer had been there before? As dark as it was, I think they had to be pretty intimate with that area in their backyard and their whole house and everything. To just walk back there and not trip and fall over something, because if you look at the stuff in the yard, there was all kinds of stuff in their backyard that was a tripping hazard in the dark. You'd have to know what you were doing. Yeah. As you know, that's our feeling as well. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. So, Mark, knowing what you know now, what are your thoughts as to how she died? My theory is, I think she was coming out the door, had turned all the lights off, had the screen door propped open in the process with her back to the main door, closing it, when somebody jumped her. I think if she'd fallen at the steps, she would have lost more stuff out of her purse and her keys and things, unless she mm -hmm. really hung on to them so she could get away. I don't know if she would have gone to her car to get away or she would have just ran out into the street. Being as quiet and dark and desolate as it was, I don't think she would have just ran to the streets yelling to run to a neighbor's house, possibly. Maybe she thought her best escape was to get in her car. So that might have been what she thought was her safe escape was to get in her car and get away. Which, unfortunately, when police arrived, her car was locked. Mm -hmm. So it's clear that she didn't even have the opportunity to get her key into the car door if that's what she was trying to do. Right, right. To be premeditated, somebody would have to navigate that backyard and, and know where to hide, Yeah, know where she would come out, where the light would spill out into the yard. There is a possibility they just knocked on the door 
but I, I don't think so. I think she was in the process of turning to lock the door. Uh-huh. It was an innocent time. Sure. Except for that moment. I know. And that's probably why it was such a significant event in Lubbock, mm-hmm. because we had grown up so sheltered for the most part in that part of town that something like that to happen to somebody that was, yeah. you know, so young and everything that was involved, it was it was just a big shock. Mm-hmm. And you and I had discussed this topic previously, but I want to bring it up here. When you and I were talking about where the killer might have parked their car and whether we thought the alley might have been used, you brought up the issue of dogs. Can you tell our listeners what your thoughts were on that? Back then, especially people who lived out in the country, they tend to have big dogs. And at that time, you had a doghouse in your backyard and your dog stayed in the yard at night. Just coming in the house is kind of new. My mom would never let our dog in the house, but it had a great doghouse. Had a heater and everything. Same. <laughs> yeah. But no, no dogs in the house. You know, that dog's going to go crazy. And they'd probably bark. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody with any brains would not have parked an alley. And if they did, the second they open their door, the light's going to come on. The door is going to ding. Every dog within a mile is going to go crazy. That was such an interesting observation. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I don't think I would have thought about that at all. If it's someone she knew, they just parked in the driveway and walked right up to the door and knocked on it. Exactly. That is a possibility. That's what I thought. That's probably what they did. But don't you think she would have heard a car pulling up into her driveway? Jennifer and I have kicked around. But an alternate theory is that she knew the person. They pulled up in her driveway and she saw them. She's like, okay, I'm going to leave. You know, I've got to get up to Pizza Inn. This person knocks on the door. She comes to the door. There's an altercation. Whatever happens, she walks past the person, and they just attack her. Mm. That's at least in the realm of possibility at this point from everything we know. Yeah. Just familiarity with someone will make you less fearful of the dark, even if someone you don't like or or having problems with. Yeah. And then the two towel things, and I, Jennifer, I've talked about this with you before. I'm not so sure the killer actually went in the house and took a shower. Obviously, we have no idea either. It's something we've tossed around because we know that the person had to be pretty bloody, at least their hands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They have to know once they get in their own car, they're probably going to have transfer blood on the steering wheel, the seat, maybe. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like they would have tried to find some way to at least clean their hands off. Yeah, I mean, we theorize that maybe the outdoor water hose or whatever. Mm -hmm. If they're familiar with the house, they're familiar with the property, then they know where that might be somewhere in the yard, you know. Yeah. It's hard for me to believe that anybody could be that bloody and get in their own car and drive off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, grass is a great hand cleaner. That's true. It is. I wipe my hand on the grass many times. Mm -hmm. Unless they had a complete change of clothes, unless they're wearing gloves. But the problem is, is that parts of the crime are so amateurish and clumsy that's like okay you went to that extent on that part but the other part you tried to make it look like she'd been raped when she hadn't you're busting windows out yeah i mean they could have gone to the kitchen sink and washed their hands could have could have went in the bathroom yep so you know something that just occurred Mm -hmm. to me literally is they could have just taken their own shirt off and wiped themselves down yeah with the back of their shirt which probably wouldn't have been bloody because they know they're gonna have to dispose of it anyways yep and I guess they could have just used that and then ran off. Yeah. What's your thoughts on her purse being taken? Do you think it was just opportunistic? I'd kind of going back to what George was just saying, it may have just been they grabbed it to make it look like a robbery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that very well could be. Why would he even take it if it was a crime of passion? Why would you even want a purse? I know. That's the thing. And it's not lost on us that she was carrying more cash that evening than she normally did. Hmm. That does bother us some. Yeah, and it it wasn't even just that. It it was the amount for 1975 Lubbock, Texas, $140 was a lot of money back then. Yeah. We can't discount the possibility that the person knew that there was $140 in her purse and took it because they knew it was just quick cash. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you worked a minimum wage job in Lubbock, Texas back in 1975, you're making $2.10 an hour. So if you work 40 hours a week, you know, you're taking home 35 or $40. So that's two to three weeks worth of wages for a lot of people in that town. Yeah. So it's not insignificant, but it's strange because the person took the purse, which the cash was in, which back then would be virtually impossible to trace. Mm. I don't see the motive for the purse. Why would you take the purse unless there was something incriminating in it possibly or 
you knew that money was in there, mm-hmm. and why let it go? Mm-hmm. Let me take this money. Yeah. Mark, were you aware of any other person that she dated during this time period? No. As far as I knew, it was Doug, Doug, Doug. I mean, she lived and breathed for Doug. She was very much in love with him, and, and vice versa. He was pretty much hit over heels with Debbie. And so that was plainly obvious to you. When she and I were hanging out together, that's all she talked about was Doug. Doug was a great guy, a great personality. He was a nice guy. He was attractive. She was smitten. So, Mark, you've been a member of our Facebook group from nearly the start. Do you think it's having a positive effect on Debbie's case? You guys have been very forthcoming in, in sharing what you do know and can share what you do know. Uh, I'm sure there's a few things you can't share, but then that's totally understandable. The main thing I want to reiterate is how much further along this has gotten since you guys have come on board and, and put your resources to help solve this. For the longest time, I never thought it would be solved. But you guys coming along and giving all of us a little bit more hope that justice will be served. Absolutely. And your work has been amazing, what you've done, the resources you've brought in, the extent you're willing to become one of us. You know. Well, I appreciate your kind words. Thank you. I do, too. So, Mark, you're pretty close with Debbie's sister, Liz, and I know that you've been involved in helping her in recent years, trying to progress the case and find this killer and get justice. Can you just give the listeners a little idea of what efforts you guys have engaged in together to help bring awareness to Debbie's case? She and her husband and me and my wife had gotten to be pretty good friends. We would go to her house and visit with her and her mom and her husband. I put together a web page for her, a Facebook page, rather, Mm -hmm. the technical skills to be able to do that. And we talked to people we knew. People would contact us asking to help an interview or, you know, it was mainly Liz's show. I tried to stay on the outside of it. And I just kind of helped her in a technical way the best I could, but I was still being affected by it. You guys did a news interview, right? One of the Lubbock TV channels did a uh, mm-hmm. teleconference, I guess, type thing, a Zoom call for that station. It was interesting. I don't know if that helped much, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, I think so. Anything to get awareness helps. And that's why I agreed to do it. You never know what it might take. <laughs> yeah, you never know. So if Debbie's killer is still alive, it's likely that they're going to hear this podcast. They're probably following our work on the case and everything. Mm-hmm. What do you want to say directly to her killer? That I feel sorry for them. That whatever in their life caused them to have to take such a violent action against somebody, I really do pity them. I do forgive them because that's what I do as a Christian. But more than anything, I I feel really sorry for them. And if that was a moment of insanity, I can only imagine what the rest of their life must have been like living with that hanging over your head for so many years. And if you you are listening to this, turn yourself in. Dragging it out is not going to help. That's right, because we're not quitting until we figure this out. Nope. We said the same thing on the last case we worked. We just made a decision. We're going to do everything we possibly can to find the person. And when we run out of ideas and we're going to regroup with everybody and come up with some more ideas. So it's not going to go away. Yep. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to be getting a little sweaty under the collar out there. I hope so. Me too. I just really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to join us. And uh, I think you shed a lot of light and gave us some great ideas and insight and more things to chase down. So... Thank you for that, and thank you for your efforts and joining our Facebook group and being a part of this. Oh, anytime. I appreciate it. Absolutely. After talking with Linus, Kelly, Mark, and many more of Debbie's friends, Jennifer and I got on the phone to discuss our thoughts and impressions. Hey, George. So I'm putting together my next podcast episode, which has some interviews that I did with some of Debbie and Doug's friends like Lennis, Kelly came on there, Mark, all really gracious and willing to talk as long as I wanted to about Debbie and Doug and their recollections about her as a person and then what they could remember about the murder. But we've got a problem, which is that the two main people we really, really wanted to get a hold of because they're witnesses to the crime scene, neither one We'll talk. Yeah, that is a problem. Well, one of them, Paul Neal, he had dated Debbie previously. He was friends with Doug for years before he even met Debbie. He was working that night at the Pizza Inn. He was a cook. He worked for Doug. 
And we left early that night to go on a date, you know, and then he came back later to help do inventory right around the time Doug was leaving to go find Debbie. You know, Jen, you and I talked about this in August. You called him at work and he did answer and he did chat with you for a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. and at some point we'll probably reveal more details of that conversation. And then in October of last year, I did a podcast episode on Diamond State Murder Board about some of the evidence in the case. And then a couple of days later, he actually called me out of the blue. And what was interesting is that you had texted many times without any response yeah. after yeah. your phone call. And then I talked to him for about an hour and I've texted him and tried to contact him since then. And he won't contact me at all. And another part that bothers me about this lack of communication is the fact that Liz has tried to get a hold of him for years and he will not return any of her phone calls. I'm very curious as to why he won't return any of the murder victim's sister's phone calls. I mean, he was friends with Debbie. He dated Debbie. So you would feel like if he would want to bring comfort to her family, if he knew something mm-hmm. that might help, you know, propel the case in a positive direction. And one thing that I talked to him about, and you did as well, the night of the murder, he asked to take a shower at Doug and Debbie's house on his way to his date with Tina with the caveat that if Debbie wasn't there, he would go by and take the shower. And that was Doug's boyhood home that they were living in at the time. So Paul had visited the house many times in the past. He said he had, Yeah, you know, he admitted admitted as much. Mm -hmm. And so first thing I asked him was, okay, do you remember asking about this shower? And he said he didn't remember. And he also indicated to you that he did not remember asking to take a shower that night, which, okay, it is what it is. He doesn't remember it. And then um, the claim is is that once he found out Debbie was there as he was leaving work, he decided not to go there and take a shower. What's interesting is when he called me in October is he told another story about how he took a shower in the bathroom the day before the murder. And the day before, they were at Buffalo Lake. Yeah. And um, Debbie, some other friends, and Paul. And so he said that he took a shower that day, but the only thing I'll say to that is We have no record of that. There's nothing in the police reports to indicate that. In fact, the question was asked multiple times, why would he ask to take a shower there? And nowhere is it mentioned. None of the witnesses who were asked about this said, hey, he took a shower there the day before. And he didn't say it himself when he was interviewed by police. So that's something that needs to get squared away. That's obviously a big detail, I think, in my mind. Yeah, well, he offered that up to me, too. I actually didn't even broach the subject of the shower, but he offered up to me that he had taken a shower at Debbie and Doug's the day before the murder. And that really caught me off guard because there's nothing that we've seen in any report that says he was at their house the day before. So it's just really peculiar to me, not to mention, you remember a shower from the day before the murder, but you can't remember all these events that took place the night of the murder, which naturally would be ingrained in your head. You know, Jennifer, it goes a step further than that. Not only would those things be ingrained in your head, you were specifically interviewed by the police as to every aspect of all of those details. And what I mean by that is it's one thing to have a traumatic event in your life, but imagine that being amplified by the fact that you're going in for multi-polygraph tests. You're going in for multi-interviews with different detectives on different days over the span of over a month. So you're being repeatedly asked the same question over and over and over again. So to think that you wouldn't recall that and you you would recall some minor detail the day before and not remember major details the day of, it just flies in the face of reality to me. Yeah, it doesn't sit well with me. No. Um, Honestly, even more peculiar than Paul's behavior and statements is Lex. Lex Brown, he was actually, I think, the first person I tried to get a hold of because, again, he is an eyewitness to the crime scene. He's one of two people who can give their recollections about that crime scene and might have a really important detail that they don't realize is important. And when I first called the number that I thought was his, a woman answered and identified herself as his wife. And I explained who I was and asked if she'd give him my phone number. I just wanted to talk to him for a few minutes. She said she'd pass it to him, but insinuated that I shouldn't really expect a call back because he'd been traumatized by this whole 
situation. Okay. That was that for that conversation. I never got a call back. I never got an email back. So I text her. And we don't know for sure who's actually texting from the other end of this phone, right? Yeah. It is a number she claimed that was hers to me. But in texting me back, I don't know if it's her texting me or Lex, to be fair, or somebody else. But whoever's at the other end got extremely belligerent extremely quickly with me, which is just really out of character, in my experience, in trying to contact a witness. And not only a witness, but someone who lost a friend to a brutal murderer, a murderer who's still walking around. And to get belligerent with me and you, who are just volunteers trying to find this killer and get them off the street, is just raises alarm bells with me. What do you think? It raises alarm bells with me as well. Lex is the person who quite literally checked Debbie for a pulse. Mm -hmm. And he's the one that determined that she was deceased officially. He was the first one to do it. And the thing about Lex is he was friends with Debbie. He was friends with Paul, actually best friends with Paul, from what we're told. Mm -hmm. And he was real good friends with Doug. And Mm -hmm. so when they were in high school, so they were very well known to each other. And you and I are both sympathetic to someone who's traumatized by a murder like this. But right now, we need information to solve this case. And, you know, he is somebody that could provide some critical details if he would even just chat with us or even the police. Mm -hmm. And the concerning part of this is the text messages just turned belligerent pretty quickly. I text messaged his wife or someone claiming to be his wife through the messaging. And within two or three messages, she was already, you know, she at one point basically told me, well, if the police didn't do their job, that's not his fault. And I was like, well, nobody's saying that it's his fault if the police didn't do their job. But it doesn't matter what happened before. We're trying to fix what's happening now. And The thing about it is, is Lex did talk to Liz one time back in, I think, 2018. She called him and he did talk to her and he said something interesting to her. He said, you know, I hope you find what you're looking for, which I thought was kind of, I hate to use the word obtuse, but it was just a, you would not respond to the sister of a murder victim. I don't think you would respond quite like that. Right. And so... And the fact that he won't return any of our calls, any of our messages now, and he won't return any of Liz's calls or text messages now, and neither will the woman who said she was his wife. So I don't know what to think about all that. It's just very disheartening because he may be sitting on a critical detail that could open this whole thing up, and I just don't understand why he won't chat with anyone. I don't know. I don't get it either, and I don't understand the the escalation on her part, I mean, she wasn't even around in 1975, or not with him, I mean, she has no skin in this game. I don't understand the accusations <laughs> at all that she jumped to. In fact, one of her direct quotes to me was, perhaps the Lubbock PD would like to know you're threatening and harassing him. And I was tempted as a criminal justice professor to give her a little lesson on what those terms actually mean and what you have to do to actually meet the threshold of being charged with those crimes, which is not sending a message trying to solve a crime but anyways but that's what she's throwing back at me and then accusing us of looking for a book deal or a movie deal and it's like wow if you would just get on the phone with us for a few minutes so we can talk you through our process and explain that we are 100% volunteers not only volunteers we've put quite a bit of our own money into this we're not looking to make anything so maybe in the future we i'm totally hypothetical here right say we do get a documentary and we make back our travel expenses or what we've spent on our own if we find the killer isn't that the ultimate goal yes but no you're exactly right i don't get people's mentality when it comes to stuff like this because the only reason we're calling lex is because he was there that night and he knows all the people involved. Exactly. And he may know some critical detail that can help solve this case. I don't understand why a documentary or a book deal or money or anything like that would enter into your thought process when you're talking about a woman who was viciously murdered, who has never, ever, ever had justice. We talk about this all the time, Jennifer. You want to squeeze every drop out of that lemon when you're making lemon juice. And we're going to have to squeeze this case. We're going to have to squeeze every drop out of every witness if we're going to have even a puncher's chance. And I don't understand the mentality of not wanting to help this woman and her family. 
Especially because, like I said, he had a personal connection to her. It's not like she was a stranger whose body he came across driving on the street or something. I mean, he knew her personally. They were friends. He was friends with her husband. They hung out. I am sympathetic to people getting put in a situation like this that is very traumatic. I mean, I'm extremely sympathetic to his viewpoint on that. And I understand it's horrifying to see a dead body and touch for a pulse. But I guarantee if he's that traumatized, he is going to be less traumatized and sleep better at night once we find this killer and get them off the street. And you would think he'd want to help with that process, even if it's only to alleviate his own traumatic memories that are going on. I totally agree. I don't understand why he wouldn't, at a bare minimum, want to relieve his own stress and anxiety over this. But, you know, this is what, you know, I always tell you that you're the optimist in this team and I'm always the pessimist. So... I'm going to flip the script. I'm going to become optimistic that maybe at some point he will chat with us or chat with the Lubbock Police Department, and maybe he has a critical detail. But, you know, there's no telling. You don't know what you know. Exactly. So, yep. And you need to sit down with professional interviewers who know this case, who know the details of it, so that we can maybe find resolution through the things you have to say. Yeah. Even when I was talking to Lennis the other day, as we continued on, he's like, oh, man, you're jogging my memory on some things. He's like, this is really good. And that's exactly what could happen with any of these witnesses is like, let us talk you through what we've uncovered and let us throw some names out. Let us throw out details. And it probably will jog a memory that maybe police didn't ask about back in the day. And that's all we're looking for. Right. And by the way, I'm just going to put this out there. She did, or whoever's answering our text, said that he would talk to the Lubbock police if they called, if they could verify their identities, basically insinuating that you and I might, I guess, try to go impersonate a cop, which would completely destroy both of our careers. So that is not something we're in the business of doing. But that was just another really outlandish comment and insinuation on their part. Yeah, I can tell you right now, that thought of doing something like that has never even crossed my mind. Never. That is just absolutely ridiculous and outrageous. Like, I teach criminal justice and law and forensics. I'm not going to go around breaking the law and, you know, lose everything that I've worked so hard for, but... Right. (laughs) That's just insane. Well, George, hey, we just keep on going. We keep pushing forward. There's a lot of people who are talking and, you know, helping us behind the scenes, so... For the most part, we've been very successful in in getting this fantastic network on board helping us. And we're not going to give up. We always say that. And we will do everything in our power to find this killer. And that's the end goal. Absolutely. This This network is growing. For sure. If anybody thinks this is going away, it's not. I want to clarify that George and I are not pointing the finger at anyone in particular as Debbie's killer or having anything to do with her murder. Paul and Lex have been given ample opportunity to tell their side and it's their prerogative to remain quiet. We are merely reporting the facts that have been presented to us firsthand and letting listeners come to their own conclusions. In good news, we received another update from the Lubbock PD this week. They've established funding through an organization called Seasons of Justice, which assists law enforcement agencies with the costs associated with retesting of evidence. Some of the evidence collected in Debbie's case has been transferred via the chain of custody to DNA Labs International, located in Florida. We want to take this opportunity to thank our listeners and those who have joined our Facebook group to help us investigate Debbie's case. Your suggestions, contributions, and ideas have greatly assisted us in our quest to find justice for Debbie and her family. We have a lot of additional audio content we want to share with listeners, but we must hold off while Lubbock PD does their part. Many of their investigative efforts take a significant amount of time to complete, and we obviously want to protect their work. We will release more podcast episodes on Debbie's case in the future, but we will likely have to take a break before doing so. The next podcast episodes you'll see in your feed are six episodes for season one of Break the Case, which were originally recorded in 2020 and 2021. We realize we are probably the only podcast to release our seasons in backwards order, but there was a strategic reason behind this decision. Season one covers George's and my work on the murder of Rebecca Gould, which resulted in an arrest in 2020. We encourage listeners who are interested in learning about our case to take a listen. We are currently producing new episodes on Rebecca's case, which will be available in the near future. 
but our investigative focus remains solely on finding Debbie's killer. Join AMU's cold case team and follow me, Jen Buchholz, and George Jared on our investigation into who really killed Debbie Sue Williamson. If you'd like to be a part of our effort and follow along, join our Facebook group titled Unsolved Murder of Deborah Sue Williamson. You can also follow us on Twitter at the handle BreakTheCaseAMU. Tips may be sent to tips at justicefordebbie.com. Anyone reporting tips is assured confidentiality. As a reminder, as of this recording, there is a $15,000 reward for information that leads to the arrest and conviction of Debbie's killer. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers, Leachin Kranick and Andy Crow, with support from Lisa Tanis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Special thanks to the Casebreakers, an investigative partner of AMU. Subscribe to Break the Case on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.